Goldie, you're not Nick. I'm not Nick. Consider me a poor man's Nick Hanauer in the sense that compared to Nick, I'm really, really poor. But I do work here. I work on a lot of the stuff that Nick works on. So, so Annie, I will try to answer our listeners' questions. Thank you so much for your sacrifice today, Goldie. I'm so happy that you agreed to do this. <laughs> so let's start. Who have we heard from? All right, here's the first one. Hi, this is Austin from New Hampshire. I love the show. Thank you so much for what you guys are doing. It's great. Uh, sometimes I hear this phrase where millennials or whomever, if they just stop buying coffees, stop doing this or that, that things would get better for them. At what point is that a legitimate argument? Just some part of it must be budgeting. But is the suggestion really that people are supposed to stop participating in the economy in order for things to get better? It seems like a disingenuous argument, but sometimes these arguments sound like they have some legitimacy to them. Like maybe if I budget better, things would be better. But when is it budget and when is it something that's greater? I guess that's my question. Thanks so much for your help. Keep up the great work. Thanks for your question, Austin. You know, if it if it walks like it's disingenuous and it quacks like it's disingenuous, it's disingenuous. This argument that the problem with millennials is that they're spending too much money on lattes and avocado toast, well, that's just an excuse to explain why millennials are being underpaid, why their student debt is so high, why essentially uh, boomers like me have uh, screwed the younger generation. Of course, budgeting matters. I'm a really cheap person, so I tend to use the free coffee in the office rather than buying something that tastes good. But that's just me. Uh, in general, the way the economy works, and we've said it before here, it is a virtuous cycle between innovation and demand. Innovation is how we solve human problems, and demand is how we tell the innovators which solutions are working. And if people stop spending money, there won't be any innovation, and we won't improve the economy, we won't get new products and services, life will stop getting better. So it's funny, the supply-siders uh, who insist that it's, you know, supply creates its own demand, that's why we need to cut taxes on corporations and the wealthy, that's fine, except when it comes to uh, millennials where they're telling you, no, 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 it's your fault for your demand. You should cut your demand. That's bullshit. What we need to do is pay people more so that they can afford little luxuries like a good cup of coffee instead of having to, uh, you know, drink the Kerrig in the office. I'm going to interject with a, a follow-up question oh, on behalf of Austin from, from Texas. From a real here. millennial. From a real millennial. Here I am. Um, how much frivolous spending should the middle class be able to do, Goldie? And how much did they used to be able to do? Do you have a good idea of that? Well, define frivolous. What? It, <laughs> I mean, what, what exactly do you mean by frivolous? The fact is, to be middle class is to be able to enjoy a comfortable and secure middle class life. And that includes spending money money on entertainment. In general, if we have an economy where everybody can afford to go to restaurants and everybody can afford to buy nice coffee and everybody can afford to take a vacation now and then, well, that's better for everybody because it puts more people to work consuming these things. You know, obviously, if you can't make your rent, 
and you're spending a hundred bucks a week on coffee, well, there's, uh, you know, maybe some more budgeting you need to do. But the problem is most likely that it's because your rent is too high and your pay is too low, not because you drink too many lattes. Exactly. Here's the next one. Hi, Nick. My name is Abby, and I'm calling from a small town just past the suburbs of Chicago called Grant Park, Illinois. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I was recently listening to the episode about saving rural America. One question I have is in regards to minimum, minimum wage in rural America. I recently ate at a small family-owned restaurant in my small community, and given the small clientele, I have concerns with the impact that a $15 per hour minimum wage would have on a small rural business such as this one. I would love to hear your thoughts on how we improve wages while also ensuring that small businesses and rural communities are able to thrive. Thanks, and I look forward to listening to you on future podcasts. Thanks for your question, Abby. Well, it turns out, to, to borrow a phrase from Elizabeth Warren, we have a plan for that, and we call it progressive labor standards. In a piece that Nick wrote in Democracy Journal, uh, we talk about a system in which we have a tiered minimum wage, and it's based on not region, but largely on the size of the employer. So in this small town, if you work for a small family-owned restaurant, you might have a lower minimum wage than if you worked at a McDonald's where you would have a much higher minimum wage. And the logic behind this is multifold. One is these larger corporations, they can afford to pay people more. They have a lot more flexibility. They can spread out their costs across their entire operations. They're already uh, buying in bulk and at scale so that their costs are lower. They have these uh, economies of scale. And they're adjusting to rising and falling costs of supplies, of energy, of labor all the time. So they'll be able to adjust, as we've shown in Seattle, where, in fact, we face in the minimum wage much faster for large employers than we did for small ones. Another reason why we would want to do this is because in much of rural America, most of the jobs are actually with these large national conglomerates, these large corporations like Walmart and McDonald's and uh, any number of national chains. So what's happening is these big companies are actually exporting value from small communities back to their corporate headquarters. So if we actually have them paying a higher minimum wage than local employers, that money is going to be spent in the economy and it's going to more of it is going to stay locally and help all businesses, both these uh, large corporations and the small local mom and pops. The other reason, and this is a really important one, it gets again to this issue of competition between let's say that small restaurant and a large chain or a small grocery store and a Walmart is that it helps balance that competitive playing field. As corporations uh, grow larger and their market power consolidates, they end up putting smaller local companies out of business and driving wages down. There's actually studies that show whenever a Walmart moves into a county, wages fall. But if Walmart is being forced to pay a higher wage, then that means when Walmart moves into the county, wages 
rise because not only will Walmart be paying higher wages, but now if you want to compete for the same employees, you might have to pay a higher wage too. And that small family-owned restaurant, well, you know what? It's going to balance out because everybody in the community is going to be earning more money and they'll be able to afford to pay their own workers a higher wage. But Goldie, what will happen to the small mom and pop stores that are budgeted based on paying poverty level wages? Well, you know, this is the great thing about capitalism is that it's an evolutionary system. And you know what? Businesses uh, go out of business all the time. And if some businesses can't figure out how to pay a living wage, if their business model is predicated on poverty wages, well, then maybe a higher minimum wage will put them out of business. But you know what's going to happen? They're going to re be replaced by somebody who figures out how to do it. And again, that's what we've seen in cities like Seattle, where we raise that minimum wage. Yeah, sure, some, some businesses did go out of business, but those storefronts didn't remain empty. Next question. Hi, this is Cody Turnus in Boise, Idaho. I'm calling in regards to the maximum wage. I was curious what your opinion is about it and uh, what you think public opinion is about it. I, I believe that most people don't understand where it's coming from or uh, how it's typically argued for. Even on the progressive side, many people just don't have the base understanding, such as the minimum amount a worker can earn in a business is uh, in relation to the maximum amount that a worker can earn in a business. So the top earner in a company can't earn more than 10, 15, 20 times the amount the lowest worker can. If you can give me your opinion on that, that'd be wonderful. Thank you. Hi, Cody. Thanks for the question. I, I don't know that I've ever heard it uh, phrased as a maximum wage, but uh, obviously what you're talking about is the huge and disgraceful growth in the ratio of CEO pay to the average worker's pay. Uh, Forty years ago, uh, when the American middle class was at its peak, uh, it used to be around 40 times. So the typical CEO might earn 40 times the average of his employees. Today, that's almost 400 times. Now, the question, and I've heard Nick talk about this, so I'll channel him, is are these CEOs that much more productive than they used to be? The fact that they're now being paid 400 times versus 40 times? Uh, or have workers grown less productive than they used to be? What actually explains the growth in CEO pay and the huge inequality and disparities we see today? Well, clearly, they're earning this money because they can. It is about raw power. If the CEO can manage to get the board to pay him that much, he's going to take as much as the board will pay him or her, to be fair. And there are a lot of things that have enabled this that would have made it more difficult 40 years ago, not the least of them being uh, stock buybacks, because how a lot of these CEOs are paid today is they are paid in stock. And if you continue to pay your CEOs with all this stock, it would dilute the number of shares out there which would lower the earnings per share. So what the company then does is they buy back their stock to reduce the number of shares out there, to raise the EPS, and allow the executives to be rewarded with even more stock. So one little technical change in terms of whether um, 
we consider stock buybacks to be legal or, as it used to be, illegal stock price manipulation could really rein in a lot of that. As to whether you want to impose a maximum to actually say, nope, you can't earn more than 40 times your average worker, I'm not sure that that's going to sell in America, but what you can do is really disincentivize out-of-control CEO pay uh, through taxes and other penalties. For example, I know Cory Booker has a proposal uh, which would say that um, when you do stock buybacks, a certain percentage of that has to go back to your workers in uh, bonuses. Uh, you could also just simply have a very high marginal tax rate on any pay above uh, a certain ratio, and or you could actually not allow corporations to deduct the cost of CEO pay above a certain point. All of that would certainly rein it in. It wouldn't eliminate it. It probably wouldn't get us back to 1970s levels, but it would certainly be a move in the right direction. Well, thanks for standing in for Nick today, Goldie, and thank you listeners for your great questions. Keep the voicemails coming at 731-388-9334. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.